On this episode of Science with a Twist, Dr. Stephen Morris, Professor of Epidemiology at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health, sits down with Thermo Fisher Scientific's Dr. Manoj Gandhi, Senior Director of Medical Affairs for Genetic Sciences. Since the pandemic hit, Thermo Fisher has been working with governments and labs around the world to make millions of tests available, yet doubts and misinformation are preventing many from getting tested. In a recent survey of more than 2,000 Americans commissioned by Thermo Fisher, nearly two-thirds of the country responded that they had never been tested for the coronavirus. Dr. Morris answers questions about what the public needs to know about COVID-19 testing, the types of tests available, and their accuracy. Dr. Morris, you've been a vocal advocate for the need for increased testing to slow down the spread of the virus. Or what role do you think testing has played in controlling this disease and do you think it has helped in flattening the curve globally? I think testing is absolutely essential and of course it has helped because it helps us to find who's infected and to isolate them so that does flatten the curve. I think the major problem is that we haven't done enough testing and we didn't start it early enough. If we'd started it much earlier we would have been able to prevent much of the curve by isolating the people who were infected and uh, then preventing them from infecting others. It's been one of the biggest gaps, I think, in our own response. I mean, right now we don't have enough testing. I was just looking at the data, and currently we have, we have about 100 million cases globally, 99 million cases to be exact. Uh, before we go any further, I just wanted to make sure that it will be useful for our listeners to understand the fundamental difference between incidence and prevalence. Could you help explain this difference? Certainly, and it's a concept we use very often in epidemiology. Incidence is the number of new cases in the population at risk. So if we had 100 new cases today, that would be an incidence of 100 cases. If there were 1,000 people at risk and 100 new cases, all of them today in people who hadn't been infected before, that would be 10% incidence. Prevalence is the total number of existing cases. So if we had 100 cases altogether at this moment in a population of, say, 1,000, again, that would be a 10% prevalence, the number of total cases, incidence, number of new cases. Now, I just wanted to get into a little bit of the survey for which this podcast was. Um, so we, from official, put out a survey to get a better understanding of the American people's testing habits and perceptions. We heard from more than 2,000 adults across the country, and I have the results of the survey in front of me. Some of the results are quite interesting. Despite all the talk about testing, almost two-thirds of the Americans who were surveyed responded that they have not been tested for COVID-19 at all. What is your reaction to that statistic and does it surprise you that almost two-thirds have not been tested at all? Well, yes and no. It does surprise me. I think it's really unfortunate because I think we should be testing much more widely. But it doesn't surprise me that there's a lot of confusion about testing. Many people don't know where to go to get tested, how to get tested. There are different kinds of tests that are often confusing to people. And there was something in the Wall Street Journal saying that um, in about 20% of the counties in America, that's about 
about 7 million people, there are no testing facilities and no access to testing at all. So we really need to make testing easier to find and more available. And then maybe sometimes people are afraid to be tested, although obviously being tested is the first step towards taking the appropriate action. When we asked as to why the people have not taken the test, they primarily responded because they haven't felt sick. I found this to be quite interesting because knowing how this disease presents as a clinician, we know that there's a significant proportion of people that are infected, but they might not even know that they are infected. Um, This is what we have referred to as asymptomatic testing or asymptomatic infections, to be clear. And the numbers around the prevalence of asymptomatic infections is quite variable, with some studies reporting low prevalence, some around 50%. And while some studies have shown even higher proportion of asymptomatic cases in the 80% range, if asymptomatic people are not getting tested, how dangerous do you think it becomes when it comes to preventing the spread of the virus? I think that's been our biggest problem, and I think that was the biggest mistake that was made in the first place that allowed this infection to spread the way it did. Uh, Actually, at least by the end of January, early February, it was clear that this could be spread not only person to person by the respiratory route, but we knew of asymptomatic infections and others that we call presymptomatic, that uh, people are not yet showing any clinical disease, any signs of being sick but they are still shedding the virus, that is, they are infected and they can transmit the virus to others. And those people can only be identified really either by testing or by finding someone who's infected and then what we call tracing, finding this person as a contact who either gave it to or got it from somebody else. So testing is really essential to find those asymptomatic individuals and separate them, isolate them so they don't infect others others. And that was really the biggest mistake, I think, from the beginning, because it wasn't appreciated how big a component in the spread of the infection those asymptomatic and really mild cases were. I know early on, as you said, we thought it might have been 90% who were asymptomatic. Those numbers keep changing, but it's a very large number. And the ones who are hospitalized aren't really spreading it to anyone on the outside. But those who are feeling well and walking around and going to bars and, and mass gatherings, those are the people who are spreading it most readily. And they're the ones who can really only be found by testing. As a follow-up to that conversation, do you believe that one of the reasons that this virus has spread so widely is because it actually might be a little bit less lethal than some of the other viruses? And as a result, there's a high, higher proportion of asymptomatic cases that do not show symptoms. In, in, in essence, they go undetected and hence can spread the virus widely in the community. There's been a very long, you know, theoretical uh, construct, a theoretical discussion about the trade-off between virulence, how deadly something uh, an infection is, and transmissibility. And clearly, there is a trade-off there. So, if something is highly lethal, if it really kills a lot of people very rapidly, it has very little opportunity to get to new hosts, to new people, and infect them. Something that's quite mild but spreads 
easily, like many respiratory infections, in fact, have a great opportunity to spread widely before we even notice it. And then maybe some of the people who are infected, as we see in this case, become very sick and die. But most people don't uh, get very sick, and so they really don't think much about it. And in the meantime, the virus is spread very easily. So this is clearly one of the things that makes a, a new infection successful, the ability to spread easily. Another interesting number that came out of the survey was that nearly half of the Americans believed that they did not need to be tested because they were following social distancing and wearing a mask and all those things that are recommended. So do you think that, you know, following social distancing and wearing a mask obviates the need for testing? I think all of these uh, what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions or non-pharmaceutical protective measures are very important, and I think we really have to follow them scrupulously. But the problem is that uh, there's no such thing as perfection. We're never going to be able to reduce the risk completely to zero. We can reduce the risk, but we all make mistakes. We all forget to put our mask on, forget to wash our hands, maybe don't put our mask Masks on properly. So I think really there is no substitute for testing. Um, in, in reality, it's the only way really to be sure that you're not infected at that, at that time of testing. You have spoken quite, you know, been an outspoken person about the infodemic and the need for more education on testing. We have seen national media cover the different testing options available and the testing accuracy pretty extensively. Even the average person who does not have molecular biology background seems to utter words like PCR test or a rapid test, which indirectly here implies a rapid antigen test. There seems, still seems to be a great deal of doubt and uncertainty around testing. In fact, what we saw in our survey was that majority, almost 63% of the Americans believed that COVID-19 tests can be wrong as much as half of the time. What do you think these findings really say about the level of confusion around the testing basics nearly a year into this pandemic? I think they speak for themselves, and it's really unfortunate how much confusion there has been. Some of it, unfortunately, created by political leaders who are really not giving the same messages as the scientists who are following this carefully. And that's really surprised me. Globally, uh, there just hasn't been good coordination of messages as well as good coordination of the actions against this virus. And that's really been a, a great uh, boon to this, this virus and spreading around. But tests, I think, you know, obviously the gold standard polymerase chain reaction or PCR molecular test is still the gold standard we all use. We've used it for many years with many different infections. And, you know, it's really the baseline against which we compare others. It's very sensitive, very accurate. I think the one problem with the PCR is that, you know, of course, it's only as good as the sample. And it can't distinguish between live and non-viable virus, virus that may still be hanging around but not able to reproduce. So there's been a lot of discussion about why a PCR test might be positive after someone seems to have recovered. And it's thought to be that's just uh, because of remnants of the virus hanging around. But in some way, that actually might be useful because if someone is infected and starts to produce virus, you can detect that very easily by doing 
doing a PCR test, but we tend to think of it as having a very short window. You have to get it at the right time when there's some virus there to detect. If people actually continue to be PCR positive, you know, even after they've stopped producing virus, it may confuse things uh, depending on how you interpret it, but it also tells you that someone has been infected at some time, either then or earlier, and that you should uh, treat them. But can you talk a little bit more about the use cases as to where you where one might use a PCR test as to where one might use a rapid antigen test? I think PCR is a highly reliable test, and it's very sensitive, but it, it requires expertise to do it. Now it's possible to collect your own sample. The last time I was tested, uh, I, I collected the swab myself under supervision, but then they still have to send it into a lab where it can be tested using the appropriate laboratory equipment. I got my results back in about 24 hours, and that's almost ideal. Under the best conditions, you can get results back in under a day, but it's probably not something you can use instantly in most cases. The antigen tests are very good to be able to detect uh, virus if there's a large amount of virus, those who are perhaps producing large quantities and are the most infectious, but that's really looking for the presence of some virus proteins or virus products in the sample you're taking. So it can be very fast, but uh, also it's not very sensitive. And compared with the PCR, it's obviously not going to be as sensitive and usually not going to be as accurate. So sometimes you may get what we call false positives. But most often what you'll see with an antigen test is that people will actually be positive on PCR. We know they would have virus, but the antigen test isn't sensitive enough to pick it up. There's been a lot of scientific discussion about how sensitive the test has to be to be useful, because we don't know how much virus you need to become infected. But obviously, we would like to have the most accurate results we can. So there have been thoughts about ways to make the PCR test sort of miniaturized or more available, but it's still an expensive and uh, labor-intensive operation. It's really resource-intensive, but it's still the best way, still our gold standard. So since the outbreak has happened, the testing has played a pivotal role in not only diagnosing SARS-CoV-2 for people who have the symptoms and then being admitted to the hospitals, but also correctly identifying those close contacts of those patients, what we refer to as contact tracing. This helps because the quarantining measures can be put in place to control the spread of this disease. How can we help understand both the value of the testing and also for people to trust that it actually does a good job in effective and it's effective in controlling with the spread of this virus? We have a lot of background and a lot of work that's been done on the quality of the testing, not only in the laboratory, but also in actual patient samples. So we know the, how well the test works. We know the characteristics. Contact tracing is a very traditional method that if it's done very quickly, because this virus can spread very quickly and the infection can spread quickly, um, if, if we do it very quickly, we can find people who 
who have become infected from a known infected individual, and they can be tested. And if they aren't yet showing symptoms, and most of them probably never will, we can prevent them from infecting others. But you need testing to be able to do that. And then you can go back down what we call the chain of transmission, which is basically who's been in contact with those who were infected and test each of those and find out who's infected, who isn't infected, and obviously isolating, separating out those who are infected. There will be positive on a, a test. And those who may not be positive, but we'll quarantine them in many cases just to make sure that they're still healthy, but to make sure that they don't later um, show up with the infection. And often you can, you can test them later on and see if they're positive. So testing is, is really essential to being able to do any kind of epidemiology and any kind of control. Uh, while we wait for the vaccines to be widely available, what does that mean for how we should all be thinking about precautions that we should be taking, such as still social, doing social distancing, wearing our masks, and more importantly, getting tested, even though we will be getting our, hopefully will be the vaccine rollout will be available to the public. What role do you think that we still need to do when it comes down to doing these precautionary measures as well as, as, well as testing? One thing that really worries me is that we may get complacent at, at some point, just as with all of these uh, non-pharmaceutical precautions, these non-pharmaceutical interventions like the masks, the social distancing, the hand hygiene, and so on. You know, after a while, people get tired of it. They, they may become a little careless, and we really mustn't. And when vaccines start to become available, people may gain a sense of false security. So I think it's really important important that we keep these measures up, even once everybody is, is vaccinated. And that's going to be quite a long time because that means the entire world. It, mean, it means pockets of the population here that are underserved and may have a hard time uh, getting the vaccine or getting to the vaccines, uh, places that don't have, um, for example, um, uh, that don't have ready access to medical or public health facilities. So all of these mean that for a while in the future, we're going to clearly have to keep up and really think about those, those other precautions. And as a matter of fact, uh, these are the very same precautions that have been recommended for flu pandemics and for um, bad flu years before a vaccine becomes available. So the bottom line there is if we could get into the habit of doing this, not even 100%, but just more often, especially during the, the uh, late fall and winter in this part of the world, uh, we could probably reduce the flu and other respiratory infections quite a bit. Uh, nevertheless, I, you know, I think that testing still plays a very important role because even with the vaccine, we don't we know the vaccine prevents disease and that was the way the vaccines were tested you can look for disease in people in clinical trials in people who were um, immunized 
versus those who were not immunized and given what we call a placebo, a, a pretend immunization without the actual um, protective component. And we know there's a big difference in the um, incidence, as a matter of fact, their um, frequency of catching the disease, that is, of becoming sick, and especially severely sick. And we know vaccines are very good at preventing disease if they're good vaccines. But there's no guarantee that they'll prevent transmission. We still don't know. We hope they will, but not all vaccines do, and many vaccines do not prevent transmission. So even once we have a lot of people immunized, there may still be transmission among those who aren't immunized, but also until we know better, and that requires a lot of testing to be done in immunized people to see if they can become infected mildly and then spread it to others asymptomatically, the way the the, uh, mildly infected or mildly symptomatic and asymptomatic people do right now. Maybe the vaccine protects against the disease but doesn't prevent transmission. If that's the case, we'll really have to be testing for quite a while until everybody has the vaccine to protect them against illness. And then we'll see it circulating around much more like the flu or a common cold when everybody is vaccinated. But testing is still going to be important because um, we, we will need to use testing to determine whether that vaccine protects against transmission and later on to find out how effective that vaccine is. Uh, so how do we educate people around the need for the frequent testing Uh, Do we need a monitoring policy either from the local or the state or even the federal level around this until we what we reach that 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 magic uh, terminology of herd immunity? I think one of the real problems with with testing, it's a lot like the vaccine. Initially, it was very hard to get a test because we really didn't have the capacity to test that many people. And it varied from place to place. The standards and the recommendations varied from place to place. And there were very good PCR tests in most cases, but there was a fear of overwhelming the system by taking uh, too many tests. Now it's much more available. The capacity is better. And so I think we need to get people up to date on the fact that they can get tested and inform them about how to do it. I agree that it's very important to tell people about why testing is important and why they need to have it. Uh, We've seen a lot of news around the B117 UK variant and the 501YV2 South African variant. Both these variants seem to be more transmissible than the original strain of the virus. Not only that, the most recent data that indicates that the UK variant might also be associated with worse outcomes with a higher probability of death in patients infected with the mutant strain. Similarly, there is data around the South African variant that the mutations may provide the, the virus a way to invade the immune mechanism, which could potentially impact even vaccination strategies. So in light of all these developments, how do you think this impacts clinical testing? So in other words, how do you think this is going to impact our testing strategies? Well, I think, first of all, you know, we've heard about these more transmissible variants, and it's not 
entirely surprising that you would see with a lot of transmission and a lot of opportunities for variants that are more transmissible to appear that they would uh, be selected for. Simple Darwinian evolution. So natural selection will favor the ones that can spread the fastest, and those are eventually going to become dominant. So it's very important to catch those as early as possible so they can be stopped. And the conventional measures we're using uh, so far have been successful if they're done carefully. Something's more transmissible means we have to be more careful with the the masks and the distancing, perhaps distance a little more, um, and hygiene. But uh, those same measures will still slow down the virus. And it's really important because we can't, shouldn't give the virus more opportunities to vary, to mutate in ways that are going to be undesirable. The other thing is that testing really is important because if something is more transmissible, we need to be much more vigilant to catch it much faster because it's going to transmit so much more readily. It's going to go faster and infect more people by time we catch up with it. And that's what happened in the UK, which does a very thorough job of testing from about 10%. You know, that's a pretty large number compared to what we do. But even so, it took them a while to catch up to this variant. And by then, it had already spread to become the dominant one all over the country. As a matter of fact, it's a very good thing that uh, many of the PCR tests we use now use several different targets. One of those targets uh, may vary enough that the conventional test could miss it. But then the other ones, the other portions of the virus that we're testing for may not vary, and we may be able to pick those up. And in fact, that's how some of these variants were discovered. As an epidemiologist, what can we learn from this pandemic? Well, I've spent probably about 30 years working on, you know, how do we stop what I called emerging viruses back in, in 1988 and thinking about, you know, what we could do to prevent things like this from happening. So, you know, in one way, it's discouraging to see this, but we can learn a lot from it. For one thing, we can learn from our mistakes. Uh, this does underscore the importance of being able to develop tests rapidly and to be able to act on them rapidly. I think the biggest mistake we made initially was restricting the group of people we were paying attention to, whereas the people we were letting through the airports and letting walk around were responsible for most of the transmission. And better testing on a wider scale would really have picked that up much sooner. There should have been much more coordinated planning. The lockdowns we had recently, you know, I think were, were not a good lesson for us. They did stop transmission of the virus where they were practiced, but at great cost to personal lives and to the economy. And since the infection doesn't 
go everywhere at once. It spreads from someplace like perhaps Wuhan to other places where people travel and bring the infection. And now, of course, with with the rapid transit and transportation like airplanes, this can be 24 hours to the come to a place like New York from China or Los Angeles. So we have to be a lot faster at, at recognizing these things. But since these do spread at different times, over a period of time, if we were able to map them better and get better handle on where they were occurring at which times, we wouldn't have to lock down. We could have much more limited precautions in local areas, time to prevent the spread of the virus, and we could really cut the chain of transmission, as we call it. We keep talking about theoretical ways to do this. It could be done if we act quickly enough. It could be done in a particular area, but we've never been successful in doing it. And I hope one thing we learn is that by being able to spot this quickly, we should be able to stop this in its tracks very early on before it becomes like this, a worldwide disaster. That was Dr. Stephen Morris, professor of epidemiology at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. If you want to hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to Science with a Twist wherever you download podcasts. We hope you'll join us next time.